everyone and welcome back to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series. With us today to share the stories behind the 10 books that had the most significant impact on her life path is mystic, shaman, writer, singer and master of conscious sound, Mahulili Leilani. An elder and a wisdom carrier, she's also an intrepid adventurer whose exceptionally interesting life story has taken her around the world. In addition to sharing the stage with people as varied as Marianne Williamson and Mikhail Gorbachev, Milili has also appeared on many national television programs, including Oprah, and she's sung to the Pope and at the Nobel Peace Prize concert. And I'll tell you that she loves four things passionately. Life itself, people and the human experience, this amazing planet and the workings of spirit. And you really should sign up if you can to her weekly blog, Musings for the Spiritually Inclined, which is a much enjoyed look at our spiritual terrain um, by a very thoughtful observer. Before we start with your list, two important questions that we ask everybody. And the first one is, um, what impact did it have on you to go back in time and mentally, you know, review all of the books that you'd read and come up with 10 that, that were your best? Well, I would ask each uh, listener to imagine what you know, the, the fun that that exercise would be, because I think then they would correctly imagine what it was like for me. Um, I began thinking, oh, there are way too many. But then I started to so much enjoy the moments in time for each one, that it was a very special, almost like life review, and look at my own spiritual journey. It was fabulous. Good, good. I'm glad about that. What do books mean to you? We didn't have television in my town until I was uh, 23 because we were surrounded by mountains and the signal couldn't get in until technology developed. And so we were a family of readers. And every night we sat in the living room. We were not a family of verbal communicators, I will say. Um, and we sat in the living room and read. We didn't necessarily talk about what we were reading or share anything, but we all sat reading. And it has a very uh, communal feel to me and kind of a family feel to me because of that. Mm. Uh, I'm a slow reader. I'm very dyslexic, so I'm very slow, but I'm an avid reader. And I, I have discovered that I now read most of my books um, on my iPhone, oddly. I never, ever would have guessed that I would say that. But it's because I can really lie down and relax. I don't have to have my head in this sort of bent forward position, nor do I have to have my hands getting tired of holding whatever, uh, you know, keeping a book open in both pages and the weight of the book and so on. Um, and they allow, the phones, you know, the Kindle uh, allows you to underline and then you can just ask to see the underlines and it's so easy to find anything for reference that I adore it. If a book is really good, I'll still buy it because I like to have it and I like to have it on my bookshelf. Yeah, so, so let's look at your first book. I mean, this one comes up again and again for good reason. And it is, it is such a beautiful, beautiful book. I mean, you know, to have given birth to something like that, I think would just, you know, that's it. I can go now. <laughs> um, Khalil Gibran, The Prophet, and um, 1923, that was published. And I was looking again at it today, and apparently it's um, third most sold poet of all time after Shakespeare and the Chinese poet, Lao Zi, third wow. most important. Mm. Yeah. So tell us what you love about this book, why it's there in your list, what it means to you. It's the first book that really took me outside of my box. I was 13. My Aunt Irma gave it to me for my 
birthday saying that uh, she thought I might find the ideas in that suited my nature better than all that stuff you get at church was how she put it. Um, she wasn't uh, a fan of Christianity and we were church going. And I read it and I had the experience of this is like how I think inside of me. I didn't know that people thought like that outside of me. Um, and uh, so uh, there was that feeling of uh, discovering there must be a tribe in a way out there of people who knew these things also, who thought these things and wondered about these things. Interestingly, I met uh, Khalil Gibran's great or maybe it's great, great. Um, let's see, Cahil Gibran is his great or great, great uncle. Um, and his name is Hajar Gibran. And he's a delightful man. And he's written a book that's almost like a, a companion to it or a sequel. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a sequel, but it has, it goes with it, and it's so beautiful that I would recommend it also. And I, I don't recall the name of it right now, but I'm sure that you can look on Amazon for Hajar Gibran. Um, and I think it's called, yes, it's called Return of the Prophet. Oh. I think. Um, and it's a fabulous book. Well, if you're going to go into the um, uh, private Facebook group, you can leave the details there as well. Ah, that would be, be a nice thing to do for everybody. Yeah, I'll do that. Mm. So book number two, Anne Lamont, Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life. And this was published in 1995. And it's regarded as a modern day classic because for a quarter of a century, probably longer now, more than a million readers have been inspired by this book. So tell us about it. Well, as a writer, I think I was attracted to the, to the title, Some Instructions on Writing. Um, but since it's also Some Instructions on Writing and Life, I was delighted at how honest it was, how broadly it applied to life. Um, and also anything by Anne Lamont, including her Facebook blog, um, is just fabulous because she's so honest and also very clear as a writer. And she's really funny. Um, and so she just understands the human condition perfectly, but helps us laugh at it and feel hopeful about it and, and move through all kinds of stuff. She had a she was an alcoholic uh, for a long period of time and got herself sober. She became a Christian. She's just the most fun version of a Christian you'll ever meet. Uh, and so I highly recommend anything by Anne Lamont. You know, I had never come across her until I saw it on your list. Mm -hmm. And I thought then I'm going to check it out and I didn't. So now I, I'm going to check it out. Um, book number three interesting one all the books by alice bailey <laughs> with a caveat right <laughs> i put a disclaimer yes <laughs> uh, at the top of that saying they're not for everybody but since um you had asked me to talk about me um since i'm a mystic i think that's part of the reason that they they appeal and that they're so intelligible to me i had a, a friend who when I brought them up to her once said, oh, those books, anybody who says that they've read all those books and understand them is telling a lie. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt really embarrassed somehow um, in just quickly in that moment. But then I confessed to her that I was in fact one of those people. When I started reading them, when it was my, my by then former mother-in-law who gave me that. Um, and then I just started reading all of them. It was because I, I understood and the feeling I had was I must have sat with this teacher. They're channeled books 
through Alice Bailey by someone simply named as the Tibetan. And they're very, very esoteric. Um, but there is a large group of people that read them and there's a study course that goes with it that's free. Um, and you're, and you have a sort of person assigned to you that answers your questions and, and you're sent materials. I, I was traveling already quite extensively and I haven't done the course, but I have talked with others who have and said it's really, really good. Um, and so it's just a metaphysical version for one's spirituality and it's very metaphysical. I was looking um, Alice Bailey up on Wikipedia earlier today and surprised to discover that she was uh, born in Manchester, England and um, went to the USA in 1907, spent most of her life there as a writer and a teacher. But as I was reading different things about her, I was thinking, oh my God, I could you know, almost imagine myself as the reincarnation of this woman. She likes all the things I like. Interesting lady. I think I've only read one of her books. Yes, and of course, since she didn't write them, they don't reflect um, the things you're talking about. I saw a documentary quite a long time ago um, about her and had the same feeling as you. What an interesting woman. I was really glad mm. to learn more about her yeah 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 book number four Carla McLaren the language of emotions what your feelings are trying to tell you and this was published in 2010 I think that this book has probably saved a lot of lives it's the best the most profound understanding of our emotions I think. And my mother was a little, I think I would say, emotionally immature. She, her development was arrested um, at a certain point uh, or interrupted at a certain point due to some tragedy. And so I didn't, what I realized at a point was if my mother is emotionally not very mature and astute, then I won't have learned many important things about emotions. And so I began to uh, try to understand emotions better, but the, the typical psychological um, versions of understanding emotions didn't really satisfy what I was hungry for, nor did the spiritual approach or the new age approach about emotions. It just isn't grounded enough in gutty enough and and real enough to what things are really like you know it's more about like the lofty view new age ideas about emotion but you know it's like when you're feeling it let's talk and this book strikes somewhere in between those things and is just wise and explains so many things i remember uh, she said she had been a member of the, what she would say, a member of the New Year Age community, but that she left it because of the emotional ungroundedness. Um, or, or she didn't like leave it, but she quit being such a participant just because of the emotional ungroundedness. And she has an educational background and so on. She's a very good writer. So these things make her uh, a good person to explain emotion to us. And then she's a fabulous thinker. And I remember her talking about anger and saying, all of this talk about how anger is wrong. Anger is one of our most important emotions. It's our boundary setter. And if we don't have a relationship with anger, and if we're too afraid to feel anger, and if we're telling ourselves anger's wrong to feel, then we can't have the transitions in life and the relationships that we're meant to. And she says, of course, there's nothing wrong with, with anger except having it as your only tool and deciding to live there. Um, and that's when it becomes destructive to yourself and to others. She has exercises and uh, 
it's it's a somewhat large book um which goes over all the emotions and it's just fabulous i still go back and and read it and i recommend it to people a lot is it um the sort of book that you know you've got to do the exercises and it takes practice no it's just i'm not a person who does the exercises <laughs> me neither <laughs> <laughs> i like i sort of go through them really intently in my head when I'm reading them and then that's it. So I feel like I experienced that. But it's more the understanding that it gives you um, about yourself, about your feelings. And, and, um, and she tells you how to, how, how to know, like often we can be quite confused about why we're feeling whatever we might be feeling what is it um and and she really sorts that out for us in a, an important way it's a book i wish was part of curriculum in schools i was just gonna say it ought to be in british schools for sure <laughs> you know because <laughs> we, we're one you know nation that is taught to button it up mm -hmm. yeah well, another one for me to check out. So number five, Michael Talbot, another one that crops up every now and then. Um, the Holographic Universe, The Revolutionary Theory of Reality. I think we may have even di discussed this last week with Andy Goldman, possibly. What was it about this particular book that you liked so much? Well, I read it when it first came out in 91. And it was the first book I'd come across that did such a good job of taking a little bit of science and some metaphysics and spiritual ideas and bringing them together in one place. So things that we'd heard of, like, um, you know, how people can master their body to the point that they can put a long needle through their arm muscle without pain, but put them together with... Um, with other pieces of information that give you a holographic uh, sort of view about what's happening there and what it might mean to your own life and to our world. Hmm. Book number six. Dated either. I'm book. sorry, what was that? I interrupted you. It doesn't seem to get dated either. It's another of those. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Well, I think everybody's really curious now. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, probably ahead of its time, I would yes, think. Yes, I, I would say. He died yeah. um, not too, excuse me, not too long after that, actually. But um, he wrote a book prior to that. I think it's called The Mystic and the Scientist or something like that. I think it's over there. Too far for me to dash over and get those. Um, but look, look on Amazon for other books by Michael Talbot because I, I really liked the one on mysticism that he wrote prior to this book. Okay, the next book, when I was checking into this one, I thought, oh, there's my kind of book. It's described as the cake with the file in it. We all lie like hell says Dr. Brad Blanton. It wears us out. It's the major source of all human stress. It kills us, but you can escape the jail of your mind. And the book is Radical Honesty, How to Transform Your Life by Telling the Truth by Brad Blanton. And when was it published? Do you have that in front of 2005. I thought maybe it was three. I don't know about all of you who are listening and watching, but I think all of my life I've had such a hunger for people with whom I could really be honest um, and, and not unkind, that's uh, not my nature, but just really to not just like one person, one good friend that I could be really myself with, but to more and more be able to have a human experience where we're being honest with one another. And I can remember as a child um, in that way that little kids 
sort of know when grown-ups aren't telling the truth and how scary that was like why are they lying was what I thought um, that difficulty of really as Brad would say being radically honest I think might be killing us almost um, and is up for us you know are we going to be able to get honest with ourselves and honest with one another and find ways to really share what needs to be shared and to truly deeply communicate or are we just going to let everything jam up and keep jamming up so that we're on opposite sides of things and don't aren't able to communicate and stay in blood feuds for generations and all of those kinds of things so this is another book like Carla McLaren's one on emotions um, that I think needs to be taught somehow in the curriculum in schools and more broadly it has so much to do with how to be a human being and he's quite a character um, there are things here and there online and he has some courses that one can take and I've seen some of that um, and so his he's like big and brash and um, and blunt uh, and so my style of being honest would be different than his, but I learned so much about how to do it, whatever your style is from him, really opened my life. Mm -hmm. He's a psychotherapist and an, and an expert on stress management. Mm -hmm. And it says here that in this book, he explores the myths, superstitions and lies by which we all live. He shows us how stress comes not from the environment, but from the self-built jail of the mind. And what keeps you in your jail is lying. Um, you're absolutely right because, you know, we're all so afraid of being transparent. And we're all so afraid of embarrassing somebody else. You know, so we listen to other people's lies and sometimes we know their lies and we let them lie anyway. Um, and, and, you know, the whole conversation is, own, yeah. yeah, it's just not real. So um, the problem with yeah. that is if we, if we don't have the opportunity to, to really be radically, deeply honest about who we are with ourselves um, and with others, we won't know who we are. You know, we, we won't, that's an exploration, understanding ourselves deeply, and we won't know who we are. So that's why it's really... And it is such a treasured thing to have someone, you know, preferably more than one someone in your life who won't let you lie to yourself. I mean, my best friend, she'll, she'll just go into hysterics if I, you know, <laughs> stop saying something you know and building myself up in some and the way she does it is so funny that I end up just laughing and saying yeah you're right <laughs> you know that's not me <laughs> um, and it brings you down to earth every time yes and what he does is show in such a wonderful way what we're up to like you know those arguments that men and women have over and over and over that everybody's so sick of um, or that we get into with family members or um, bosses or whatever he has a way of breaking those down where it's just one aha after another and shows you the path out of it yeah he's pretty brilliant he really is oh good so number seven the convoluted universe book one by dolores cannon and this was a sequel to The Custodians. I found her books a little bit hard to read at they the are. time that I was reading them. Mm -hmm. I understand that because they're, uh, it might have been like with book, I think book one is what I started with and of the convoluted universe, which I thought, wow, cool, far out, pretty interesting stuff. It's just her, all it is is her telling things that have occurred in, um, in hypnotherapy sessions. She was a preeminent hypnotherapist of the, I think starting in the 40s or something, and developed a much better method of hypnosis. But, but 
found herself accidentally into past life regressions and many other things that and then like post-life regressions and next life regressions or whatever you would call it but it's really challenging because some of it you think well how could that possibly be so you find things that challenge anything you think which i happen to like so mm -hmm. if you don't if one doesn't like that then i don't recommend it um, you will find much that confirms what you thought and that answers many questions and then you'll find stuff that just like you go whoa i don't know if i can get there but i don't feel compelled to get there i just find it all really interesting so mm. i think there's five of them or seven of them i don't know i read them all. oh there's a lot there's a lot yeah book number eight annie dillard an american childhood the electrifying memoir of the wide-eyed and unconventional upbringing that influenced the lifetime love of nature and the stunning writing career of Pulitzer Prize winner Annie Dillard. Tell us about this book, what it means to you. The reason that I have it in the list, I, I think I might have said in my description that I think it gave me back my childhood. Yes. The voice of childhood is so well done by her. The, the way that a child sees the world and thinks is so well expressed that even if it's not, if her childhood doesn't resemble yours, it reveals somehow your own childhood, I think, in, in a wonderful way. And I have had very few memories of my years prior to the age of eight which I knew was because of some abuse, but it's only um, uh, quite recently in the last couple of months that I've begun to actually remember more details of that abuse and therefore started to be able to remember my childhood prior to eight. So not having been able to remember that sooner, her book gave me the, oh yeah, that's what it felt like. It really gave that to me, not remembering myself before I was eight. And I read it not too long before my, in my mid-30s, my first memories of the abuse that explained why I didn't remember much before I was eight. And so it was really, really important to me. And, you know, she won a prize, the prize for it. So it's beautifully written. I also read I've read everything by her. She's just an extraordinary writer. Just mm -hmm. Amazing. Her essays and short stories, which I don't read as often, essays and short stories. Hers, I can't get enough of. They're just mm -hmm. so brilliant. They're fabulous. Full of meaning. You, you said in your description, um, this is the book that gave me back my childhood and helped me recognize the voice of the child I still am, who weaves in and out of my day, often ignored, sometimes abandoned, but frequently irresistible in her persistent query, can you come out and play? And, you know, that is such a beautiful phrase, isn't it? I mean, who, who wouldn't smile when someone says that to them? Because you just think about what images you know, and ideas and delights that that phrase conjures up. In spite of the unremembered abuse, the some playfulness um, has been apparently basic to my nature. And one of the reasons that I said that is one of my big frustrations is the difficulty of getting grown-ups to come out and play. <laughs> They're too busy. They have too many important things they're doing and, and uh, you know, we have to know I can't do that until two weeks from now. There's not much space in so many people's lives. And one of the things that I'm enjoying um, as the silver lining in this period of time, this global pause, as Stuart Pierce says, that we're all having is um, more people are available to play. <laughs> Oh, let's just get online and, and let's make up something fun to do. You know, those are the sorts of things I, I really enjoy and I like to do. And um, and, and grown-ups are generally, other grown-ups are 
it's maybe too structured for that a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. And the really cool thing is to be playful when you're grown up is just the coolest thing. It's, it's, you know, when we were little, we would say, when I grow up, I'm going to do whatever I want to. I'm going to stay up all night and watch all the TV I want and eat all the jelly donuts I want. And then we don't. I mean, I don't want to eat a bunch of jelly donuts, but we forget that how much we were looking forward to growing up so we could do whatever we wanted. I think that's what we ought to be doing. It's doing what, really doing what we want. I agree. So book number nine, I'm going to pronounce it the English way. I don't know how the Americans would pronounce the name. Maria Popova, and it's Brain Pickings, but it's not a book. Tell us about this one. I think I had to send you a little email on this and say, hey, can I, can I put in a blog instead of a book? <laughs> and you said you can put anything you want. So yeah. your rules were were loose and delightful in that occasionally they are (laughs) for the special people (laughs) well um i would say popova too i think she's polish um this is a blog like nothing i've ever seen and she does it weekly and i can't imagine how that's possible it's a blog that will take a topic and then give you the best of other writers on that topic. And so you'll run across maybe six or eight books in the course of a blog that she's pulled out phrases from, how they fit together. And she'll feature those. And and then she'll find something else in that book and she'll state it and there's a link and you follow that link and you're in a whole other world. And her links link into the most wonderful places. I I can spend hours a week there um, because you just end up in the best of every writer living and dead um, and the most wonderful things that have been said about anything. It's fabulous, just so good. And she, it's a blog, so it's free, but she allows people to make donations to it. Um, And then there are some other things she does, like present a special she'll get some group of living of course writers together um and do some recitations or something like that so she's a really interesting person her her own writing the way that she links all these books and chooses an idea and follows threads and then gives the side threads and takes you to other places as a writer i look at that and think how does she do that i'm just i'm full of the most inspired kind of envy um, at the brilliance that she has to be able to write like that. Well, last year she uh, released a book called Figuring. Yes. And it says it explores the complexities of love and the human search for truth and meaning through the interconnected lives of several historical figures across four centuries. Oh, um, yeah. I have to write that down. Mm. It says, stretching between these figures is a cast of artists, writers, and scientists, mostly women, mostly queer, whose public contribution has <laughs> risen out of their unclassifiable and often heartbreaking private relationships to change the way we understand, experience, and appreciate the universe. Wow. Figuring. Mm. Okay, so book number 10. Uh, It's more than a book. There's about 12 or 13 of them. One of my favourite people too, Lee Carroll, the Cryon books. Started with the end times, new information for personal peace in 1993. And his most recent was The New Human, The Evolution of Humanity in 2017. And I know that you know Lee, that you've traveled with Lee, that you've spoken at some of his events. And I've had dinner with Lee many times. And what a delightful person he is. He is. He's a genuine. A walk to talk person. Yeah. Has a lot of yeah. integrity and, and, gen- and is genuine, like you said. Mm. Um, 
gosh, I think prior to when his first book came out, he released it as a little homemade spiral bound book. And a friend gave me that. And it's uh, the metaphysical channelings of a being called Cryon, who is a magnetic master in the universe. And there's science that comes up and different kinds of things. And over the years, I think I've read most of the books and uh, he has a fabulous website where all of the channels are there for free um, after he has done one, no matter whether it's online or in Germany or wherever around the world it might be, he posts it and it's available for free. So one of my favorite things is to catch the channels there from time to time. And the book, when I first read it, really spoke, it was, I was nervous about and new to channeling, um, but I had, someone else had dragged me off to a channeler and it had turned out to be interesting. And so when they gave me this book, I, I found it interesting. But also interesting is my younger son came through and, and I think he was uh, maybe 20 or 19 at the time. And he saw it lying about and picked it up and disappeared and it came out and he said, what is this? And so I told him and he said, this is the real stuff. This is true. This is guys talking truth. This is talking like the stuff we all know somewhere. And I thought, well, it's interesting um, that he would also feel that way about it. Mm. Well, 10 books and we've got through it already. Um, okay. Keywords. Now, I ask everybody when submitting their list to give us some keywords or phrases that they would use to describe themselves. And most people choose from their bios, you know, shaman, healer, writer, singer, master of conscious sound. But what I want from you today is one more, two more if you want, word or phrase that gives us an intimate sight, you know, in, insight into who you are that maybe only your friends know, you know, tree hugger. When you and Kate and I spoke, she had said to you, she's the most thoughtful person I've ever met. And I would say that uh, thoughtful is probably one of the phrases. Um, okay. You know, for this kind of thing, I almost have to search for what, what do people often say about me that I haven't quite realized about myself? Because mm. that's sometimes where you see interesting things about yourself. And I have had many people reflect back to me that I'm thoughtful and what uh, is usually meant by that and what it means to me is I'm not a person as interested in what comes off the top of my head. I, I, and so when I used to do a lot of interviews, sometimes the interviewer, the news person or whatever would say to me, you always pause before thinking, don't you ever talk off the top of your head? And I would often say that that's valued in the media as though, as though it were more honest. But to me, it's more honest to stop and think, what do I really think about that? Because whatever I say off the top of my head, I'll go later and think, oh no, here's what I really think. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us have that uh, kind of experience of either I wish I had said, um, or continue a conversation that we had with someone in our own heads to discover more fully what we think. But at any rate, I think I was born with a pause before I answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and with this sort of primary interest of being thoughtful. So uh, thinking, I think about things a lot. That's yeah. one of the things. And if you were, you know, looking, observing me, unknown in my house uh, you would see me just standing and thinking a lot or just sitting and thinking a lot um, just mulling something over just turning it and I think I might have gotten that from my father who I watched I remember asking him once when you're sitting there not doing anything looking like that what are you doing <laughs> 
And he said, well, I'm thinking. And I, I said to him, well, what are you thinking about right now? And he said, well, I'm inventing a special thing to reel in your brother's fishing nets that doesn't exist. And so I'm thinking about how, what, what would that thing have to be able to do? And Did he ever invent really it? For me, it's like, wow, <laughs> that's cool. Did he invent it? He did, yeah. He did. He even uh, made it and then turned it over to a local machinist and told him, here, here's the plans, here's the drawings, here's the prototype. Um, you can make them and sell them to the local farmers. I mean, uh, fishermen. We were in a fishing town. I think it's a bit of a lost art, contemplation, reflection, mm. you know, I mean, it's something that uh, I've appreciated about you ever since I've known you. I mean, I tend to be very off the top of my head, you know, and that's probably part of my Gemini persona, you know, it's, and then afterwards I think about it and go, mm, I could have gone a bit deeper there, but um, I really appreciate that about you because I know that when you do speak, you know, you've, you've considered what you're saying deeply and this, this is what you think. It's not. And it's part of growing in light. It's part of the spiritual process, isn't it? I mean, it's deep inquiry is what the Buddhists call it, self-inquiry. Yeah. Um, and it's that uh, to understand what you think and then to go and deeper than that and to see what else you think about that or why you think that. And to follow that to um, greater and greater self-awareness and consciousness. Now I know that people are going to be uh, very eager to know more about singing for the Pope. <laughs> what, I mean, how does that come about and what is it like? And which Pope was it? It was Pope John Paul Fourth, is that what it was? I'd have to look up the number, Pope John Paul. Um, and it was in maybe 2000, around that time probably. So not one of the recent uh, popes. There were several different things about it. One of the fun things was a private tour of the of Vatican City, of the Vatican. It meant there weren't the hordes. So seeing some of the art and things like that was very special. One of the odd things about it was the pre, there were many pre-interviews and things. But then at the end, I was with men in black as the only way to say how it felt, men in black, um, like those FBI security guys. And it was not a friendly experience. It was grilling. Um, and they were grilling about a stand on abortion. And uh, I was singing with my daughter and they wanted to know her stand on abortion. And I told them I won't speak for her. And they didn't like that. They said, you're the mother and we want you to tell what her standing on abortion is. And I said, I'm not gonna do that. You have to ask her. And they really didn't like that. And this was like an hour and a half of grilling, unattractive grilling, unpleasant grilling about values. And they said, you know, we have a large youth audience and we have to know whether people in and in and But I was kind of put off, as you can imagine, by that. But we went ahead with the experience and we were going to sing an acapella song that we had worked out that was very beautiful. I wonder as I wander. But because they weren't pleased with us, they disallowed us from singing what we had prepared and gave us a song we were unfamiliar with and had never sung together, rather. Most Christmas songs one is somewhat familiar with. And we had to sing A Little Town of Bethlehem with a full orchestra. 
and I've never sung with a full orchestra. And I also have, didn't have earbuds. And when, when you don't have earbuds, and you can't really sing with a full orchestra because you can't hear them. All you just, all you can hear is so much orchestra, you can't hear your own voice. So then you sound like you're singing in the shower. Uh, or, you know, you're singing with headphones on, you know, those people on the train or bus or something are singing totally off key. Uh, and she had her, my daughter had her headphones, um, her earbuds. Um, but I sang horribly off key. But what I've learned is none of that matters because my singing um, has always been about what comes into us that can be expressed out. And that doesn't, that expresses whether I do well or not. And so my ego would prefer I was singing on, on key, but I didn't really mind um, because it felt more important to be who I am uh, in, in that particular environment, sharing what I am in frequency, in song, in sound, and, you know, in the light that, that we are. That was the real opportunity of it. And it was very trippy to stand on the stage in this beautiful hall um, and to see, you know, right there in the front rows, the men in red with the really big fancy hats, and then right behind them, the men in red with a little bit smaller fancy hats, and then right behind them, uh, the progressively smaller, you know, still quite impressive, but less and less impressive costumes and outfits as they, as they went back until there were, you know, all of the priests, and then Far in the back, 30 seconds before the concert started, the nuns were let in to one row in the back and one row standing. And so it was such an experience of hierarchy, of, um, of you know, it, as an experience of being there, it wasn't what people would imagine. As an oh. opportunity to communicate to um I think their listenership was something close to a hundred million uh, for this for the Christmas con the yearly Christmas concert, and so as an opportunity to communicate, you know, as long as just leave all that stuff behind and open one's heart and forget whether I'm going to sound good or not sound good, just be what I truly am. That was extraordinary. So that's what was amazing about it. Wow, what a story. Yes, absolutely not one would have expected you to say. Right. And the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, it was the Peace Prize concert? Yes. Or the Nobel Awards concert? It was the Peace Prize concert, yeah. Was that more enjoyable? Yes, that was beautiful. It was fabulous. And it went, um, it went really well. And the king was up there. And... You know that's it's a small country, and and then relatively informal because of that, and um, the events after were also, you know, they were beautiful and wonderfully done, but more a little less formal, therefore more enjoyable, um, because there wasn't a lot of protocol and things like that that you had to be careful to. Um, to observe. Is there one performance that you've given that stands out above all others? Well, it's sort of an odd thing that comes to mind. It was after I'd begun to have some unusual experiences of sound and my former husband and I had been a duo for many years and had done well in that way. And we were divorced. And I was thinking of joining some other singing group. When I had these unusual experiences of sound that were really kind of life-changing, that took me deep into 
the use of the human voice for the growth and awakening of the human being and the healing of the human being and especially our own voice for ourselves. And so I began, instead of accepting any of these offers that I had, to just sing every morning from, with this that I was discovering. So I started with things like, Mary had a little lamb, and I was, Mary had a little lamb. You know, just finding something else there, not about singing, but eventually leaving words behind and just going with sound and syllables and learning all the caverns and openings. You know, we're sounding instruments. There's no doubt. There's spaces in our lungs and sinuses and all sorts of things. And then a few years later, I had another experience of sound that took that further. And then I had the first performance that I'd done in a very long time because I had stopped. I just wanted to sing every morning by myself and try stuff, play around. And I sang to a small group of artists. Um, I was a visual, making my way as a visual artist at the time, and I'd been asked to uh, be at the school of Dale Chihuly and be a, a teaching assistant. And each assistant gave a presentation. And during it, I sang a couple of songs. And the reason that I, you got to do whatever you wanted. And the reason that I did that was I'd been playing, I had discovered that you could not, if you didn't have words in your song, people would still pick up on the feeling of the song if you held it really clearly. And so I was playing with the idea of, you know, really embodying and thinking and visualizing the word love or harmony or beauty or something. And so I wanted an opportunity to do that. And uh, it was the first time that I'd really had an, you know, an audience of a hundred or a few more than more than a few people for that. And it was so amazing to me that people, I sang three things, and each one I had a different word for, and people used those three words over and over and over um, about it. And then I did, a, I was combining music and art at the same time as performance pieces, and I, I got a whole bunch of blocks of ice, gave people chisels. They made little sort of human shapes out of these blocks of ice with a cavity in the center put a candle in it and we launched those on the lake there at night with people standing around in different groups singing around together and for some reason right now those two things in that moment in time at that art place really come to mind to me as favorite and maybe have something to do with what i need to think about um, and what i'm going to get intrigued with somehow um, it was working with people and their voices and the magic of singing who we are, you know. So does that tell us a little bit about the Master of Conscious Sound title? Ultimately, of course, since the, those first experiences of sound were in the early 80s, and uh, since then, I remembered many things about having, in very ancient times, been a master of sound. And one of the great masteries of sound is what I call the, um, within the mastery of, of conscious sound. And what I mean by mastering conscious sound is the sound, the frequency the sound that we are, really mastering that is one of the greatest spiritual opportunities that there is. It's, that's about one's frequency. 
in one's light. So that's what I mean about mastering conscious sound. And within that, there's chanting and singing and so on. But many, many other things. And what I could remember was way back pre-Atlantean times, when the waters were starting to rise, and we knew the wheel was turning from the time that we were in, which was a time of still being very in physical, but very much connected and one, to the time of individuality and our great seers and prophets or whatever we call them were telling us about this and and like all of us you know in this new time as times are changing we we're interested and we're talking about this and we're wondering what it means and what it's like and so on this was a time like that but what we were moving toward was a time of individuality which was sort of unthinkable to us like what what would that be like because we were so used to being a different kind of um, groupness. And I remember as a master of sound thinking, could I hear, is it possible I could hear only my own sound? And as I remembered that, I thought, you see, that moment of hearing only you, of finding that which is only you, for the first time, what a moment. And so I stood in this sort of like a tiny amphitheater, a little dip that had, had been made, uh, a natural place that had been sort of enhanced that uh, wasn't very large at all. And I stood in the, the middle of this sort of little bowl and I listened and listened until I suddenly heard what was only me. And it gave me a sense of what was coming and of why that would be desirable. Now, we've taken individuality places nobody then would ever have imagined. And we're now going to move back in the other direction, kind of keeping both. But what we each are is our own unique sound. That in, you know, that is our own expression of the light that we are. And the harmonics of that. And within that, are the harmonics of God, since that's what we are. And I call the harmonics of God the inaudible sounds. They're beyond the, the physical ears hearing spectrum. And to understand them, I think I probably need to stop. I bet oh, I'm yeah. talking about this with Stuart a lot more. I, my interview with Stuart Pierce is on Monday, and we're talking, it's called Divine Song. But um, to me, if I really connect with the love that I am, the love for me, I express it unconsciously, you know. As soon as I integrate it, as soon as I feel it, in a moment of feeling it, I'm communicating it. And that's an inaudible sound. And so, for instance, our beauty, harmony, mm. balance. And we are and can be extraordinary expressions of these inaudible sounds that are the essence of our being. And that's, I probably will maybe start to do some teaching about that, but that's one of my areas of, of mastery and of interest. Wow. Thank you. Isn't Sandy fabulous? You just do the best interviews. I want to go on the airplane with you forever. 
Well, we have we have questions. Um, we definitely have some responses. Okay. Um, you know, uh, to various things that you've said along the way. Um, Jane, uh, in reference to radical honesty, says a real challenge to live vulnerable. Do you have an example of applying this? Do I have example of a what? Of applying this in your life. Oh, applying. Oh, I have a very recent one. Um, as I mentioned, uh, only in the last couple of months, I've started to remember more about the abuse that occurred prior to eight. And I've been open to knowing more about that all of my life. I've always thought it would be better to know and that it might give me more childhood memories. And yet it hasn't come forward. But through some serendipitous events, it began to happen um, in the last six weeks or so. And there are many things that were, uh, of course, difficult, many tears, um, as I remembered. And I had guidance from those who, I call them those who walk with me, my team or guides. Such beautiful guidance. And they spoke about the vulnerability because, um, you know, a child who has been molested has had their, their vulnerability overrun, um, you know, the, and, and so remembering, I felt incredibly vulnerable. And those who walk with me said to me, one of the reasons for it coming forward was to gain that vulnerability, which had, I was too young to understand what was happening and so on. And so I suppressed the memory and I actually did remember saying to myself, I'm too little to know what it means or what's, or what's happening or, or anything. And I have to wait till I grow up. <laughs> and having something that needed to be protected for my well-being and my safety for so long meant that there was a part of vulnerability that couldn't be free, that had to be protected. And so I began to gain this huge vulnerability and I was cautioned or guided to cherish it, not to try to protect or not try to normalize so I didn't feel so vulnerable that that vulnerability of the child, which includes trust and innocence and so many things, um, was a prize. It was part of why it was so worth it to remember and to re-experience. And they also said to me, be careful now as you remember not to tell yourself the cultural story about how you lost your innocence or you your childhood was taken from you. You lost nothing and nothing was taken from you you had a childhood it included this experience which is not right or desirable but it was your experience in your childhood do not say you lost your childhood you had your childhood and don't do this to your life and say i don't accept my life and they said your innocence is innate it cannot be taken by anyone from you. That's a cultural story that is not true. And don't let it remove by belief. Your innocence is there for you at any time you wish to discover it or explore it. It's innate in you. And those were earth-shaking things. There were many things that were hard and, and being vulnerable uh, around it was not easy. There were many tears, but there were many gifts in it. And I'm so, so very thankful to the child that I was that knew to, to go ahead and just forget it and wait till I was big enough to understand. <laughs> Having 
received so many of your newsletters. You know, I know the wisdom of the beings that walk with you. And, um, and I love what you share in your newsletters. So I, you know, if, if it's still open, I would encourage um, everybody to sign up for them because well, for uh, the first time since I started it eight or nine years ago, it's finally available as a, as a real blog. It just grew somehow by word of mouth, but people had to actually get a hold of me somehow and ask me to put them on it manually. Yeah. Now it's on my website, and Good. Uh, that's mahulili.com, and you can sign up there. <laughs> Good. This has been such a treat. It, it really has. Fun. Thank you so much for making oh, thank me you. talk about myself. <laughs> well, okay, you know where to find me, Lily. You can go to her website. It's M-A-H-U-L-I-L-I dot com. Fairly simple, even if it's hard to pronounce. And um, Malili, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sandy. I love you dearly. Love you too. Goodbye. Look forward to being with you next week. So take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.